Well, hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Great to have you with us and great to have you with us as well, Philip. Good to be back again. We have a packed episode, as the two Ronnies used to say at the beginning of their programs, a packed program tonight with, uh, with lots of different things. First, I just want to touch briefly on a current public controversy that's been happening here in Australia that, that connects with some of the issues we've been discussing in recent weeks about public speech, speech about censorship and so on. In case you haven't heard about this, on a chat show, a TV kind of nightly chat show here in Australia called The Project, um, a gay comedian was on there and he made quite, well, a vile and vulgar joke about Jesus, which I won't repeat here. Now, most of the other panellists on the show laughed and there was a subsequent outcry and protest from many people and then they apologised the next night for the offence that the joke caused and in part they said we want to acknowledge the particular offence and hurt that it it that is the joke caused our muslim and especially our christian viewers obviously i understand how profound that offence was uh, and so on and so forth we are sorry and now a public protest is being organized in the next couple of weeks by christians and muslims together calling uh, for the show to be axed i believe and certainly protesting at how outrageous all of this is. Philip, will you be going to that protest? I mean, how do you feel about this? No, I certainly wouldn't be going to that protest. Um, I'd uh, ask people not to do that. It, it, it's fascinating, firstly, that um, we the, the apology was for offence caused, not for doing the wrong thing, but for causing offence. And secondly, that it was offence to Muslims. Oh, and also especially Christians. Um you know, the Muslim population is very small and uh, I'm not sure that it's the offence to Muslims particularly. It's just pointing out that Muslims are also interested in Jesus, but it seemed a slightly extraordinary thing to do. But I wouldn't go to that protest because I believe in free speech. And you can't believe in free speech and at the same time protest when somebody speaks freely. That, that's, that's a nonsense. Uh, we've argued here over the last few weeks, actually, on this subject that that people should be free to say things, even the things that are offensive to you, even things that challenge what you believe, because uh, otherwise how do you know the truth if you stop people being allowed to say things? Furthermore, jokes about Jesus are not new. You know, There's the famous uh, one about Alexamenus uh, worships his God, which is a... Uh, a piece of graffiti discovered in the uh, 1850s uh, in Rome, uh, in a building that had been sealed up for centuries. And there's a picture of, uh, of this Christian man worshipping a crucified man who's got a donkey's head on. Here's a piece of, you know, second, third century um, jokes against Christians. There's nothing new in jokes against Christians. And there's nothing new in our society um, being opposed to Christianity and making fun of Christians. Uh, we should expect it uh, because we follow the crucified one. I think it's slightly new culturally within our kind of um, Christian society, but it's part of what is happening and has been happening for a while. And I think Christians have just got to get used to it. In one sense, though, we can also point out the 
the hypocrisy of it in a sense. It's oh, a, yes. In terms of our engagement with these kinds of things, the goal is not to get our hands on the lever that pulls the lever that for the trapdoor that people drop down into perdition. Like We don't want to join in the cancellers. No. But we can point out that their attitude to these things is grossly inconsistent. Terribly inconsistent, terrible hypocrisy. And that's worth pointing out. There's the hypocrisy at, at, you know, we don't want to cause any hurt to any people. You know, all these speeches are hate speeches. But they don't really mind attacking, the very same people don't mind attacking Christians and hurting their feelings. That's a perfectly acceptable thing. Now, we as Christians, I'm saying, we shouldn't respond with with censorship or with trapdoors, as your illustration is. We shouldn't respond with that way. But we should be able to point out somewhere along the line that it's a little hypocritical to, to talk about sensitivity readers and the postmodern concern for not causing offence to anybody and hate speech and not at the same time uh, be able to say, well, that is exactly what this is. Um, now, because I don't believe in censoring one way, I don't believe in censoring the other way. There's also cowardice. That is, they wouldn't use the same joke about Muhammad or a similar joke about Muhammad. Why? Because Islam is a minority? No, that's not the reason. It's because they daren't, because the Muslims would retaliate. And retaliate, well, we've seen it with the jokes in... in uh, or just the illustrations of the Prophet Muhammad and so on, the yes. cartoons and so on, Charlie Hebdo, the whole thing. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And so I remember some years ago they wanted to do a Bible at, at New South Wales University. They wanted to do a, a, a Bible Frisbee day where they'd get Bibles and throw Frisbees. as a Using the Bible as a Frisbee. Yes. Mm. And so I went and saw them and I offered to provide Bibles for them. Um, at which they were slightly surprised. Uh, and I said, and I'll also provide Qurans so that you can do both the Bible and the Quran. And once that came out, the whole idea got dropped. They didn't mind doing frisbees on the Bible, but they knew doing frisbees with the Quran would lead to violent repercussions. And so it's where Islam and Christianity are so very different. And... Islam and Christians joining together in protest, it should warn you there's a problem here. And it's not really the way Christians think or should think about the way church and state or Christianity and the state interact. It's a very, in a sense, Islamic way of thinking about the issue because in Islam, church and state are one. There's no difference. It's it's perfectly consistent with, a, with an Islamic way of viewing the world that you would have a protest, try and get your hands on the levers of power and try and ban certain speech and ban things and impose, in a sense, religious sensibilities from above, uh, it's not really consistent with, with a Christian way of thinking about society, although, of course, Christians have fallen into it at various yes. points in history. Yes, we have, but we mustn't do it personally. That is, what we're told by the Lord Jesus is to turn the other cheek. And at that point, we're very different to Islam. We are preaching the crucified one. Yet he's risen from the dead and rules the universe. But we are called upon to suffer for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to retaliate. The trouble with turning the other cheek, of course, is it looks as if we don't care, when, in fact, we do care. Um, uh, but 
we shouldn't be taking our care for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ into that kind of retaliatory action or suppression or censorship. Um, so how would you respond? Like in someone blasphemes or tells a, a really off-colour joke about Jesus or says something in some way that is offensive to you personally, how, how would you respond? Well, there's several ways in which you can do it. One of the ways is to be saying, well, it's a funny thing about Jesus, isn't it? Everybody always wants to crucify him. Um, so I've taken you back to the gospel and I've put you on the defensive. Um, it's all right to express my hurt, but the trouble is when you express your hurt, then people will say, yeah, well, but you've hurt us. And so... It becomes a hurt competition. Yes, how hurt are you? Are you more hurt than I am? So I'm not sure that's the way, nor even to, to say to them in that context, well, I accept free speech and that's just the cost of free I can try and demonstrate their hypocrisy by saying, well, that's, that's really interesting. Would you say that about Muhammad? Have you got a good joke about Muhammad? And point to their cowardice and hypocrisy that they won't do it. Or I can say, well, gee, there's a good example of woke sensitivity at work, isn't it? Uh, I could try that. But I went to school with a friend called Michael Benjamin. Haven't heard of Michael for 40 years. I'd love to get in contact with him again. But Michael was, was a very popular man, a quiet man, but a very popular man. And I saw in the end why. It was every time people said anything negative about someone, Michael would always interject and say, you know, he's one of my close friends, don't you? I don't know he had that many close friends to the number of people. I, there are times I thought, I'm not even sure Michael knows that person. But I tell you what, it was a great stopper for people gossiping. It's a great stopper for negative. It's a very clever answer. So when someone says something like that, I say, well, you know Jesus is very important to me, don't you? That means for you to continue with this joke, you have to do it intentionally hurting me. Most people at this point just stop saying anything, don't they? I haven't told them to stop. I've just changed the kind of grounds upon which we're sitting at the time. And so I, I think use the Michael Benjamin uh, defence. I like it. The Benjamin defence. The Benjamin defence. Um, speaking of the public square, of speech, of, of how we interact with others, um, bouncing off our, our piece about the myth of the public square a few weeks ago, I received a number of really great letters. Uh, one was from my good friend Phil, who writes about the phrase community standards um, and how it gets used in the public square these days. He says, I heard an interview on the BBC last week where the possible frontrunner who was an evangelical Christian for the Scottish ruling party, was being hammered because her views were out of touch with community values or accepted community opinion, by which they meant she thought that kids should really have a mum and dad, that marriage is between a man and a woman, that killing babies in the womb is wrong, and so on. It's the same with Facebook. It cancels people who don't meet community values. But who decides this? It's not a poll of majority opinion or based on feedback received. It's a small committee of executives somewhere in the Facebook offices, but it's asserted as accepted community standards. The more that the media and the ruling elites assert that there are accepted community standards, the more everyone accepts it and quietly moves to the sidelines because they're out of touch. Which I think is very perceptive. It's a way that our 
the current controllers and dominant voices within the public square, who really are a small group of people, try to say what's acceptable within the public square. It's community standards, by which they just mean what we believe. Yeah, that's a very perceptive point. There are none of these studies as to community standards, even if that were, in my view, an acceptable argument, it's not actually an argument based in any evidence or fact that I know of. It's like when Tony uh, Blair's uh, media man said, you know, we don't do religion. We don't... We don't do God. We don't do God was the phrase, right? And it turned out, actually, people didn't mind Tony talking about God as much as the media man didn't want him to. Um, I, I think... Your friend Phil's got a very good um, point to be making there. It's just another attempt to to bully and silence people, I think, and it, to try and define the community, and so ex- by doing that, to exclude people from that mm. conversation. On a similar note, um, Lewis Lewis wrote in also with uh, to send an article that he'd written, which is a very good article. I'll tell you where to where to find it. Called "There Is No Public Square: The Secularist Myth of the Neutral Ground." Uh, and in this article, which I wish we could read extensive sections of, but I'll just read you a a short section of in a moment, Lewis really argues that the public square, this mythical space, is really the end point of the failed Enlightenment project. The Enlightenment was trying to say to us, look, just by rational inquiry and by us using our minds and our reasons, we're going to be able to find justice and truth. We can figure these things out for ourselves just using our intellect. But of course, that failed miserably. All that happened was an interminable debate uh, that just went nowhere in the end. And Lewis's point was really that the public square, as it's come to be, was kind of like a marketplace for that interminable, never-ending debate to continue which just sort of demonstrates the failure of the whole project in a way. But in particular, he points out that the characteristics of the public square, therefore, are that you must have the lowest common denominator of shared assumptions, um, since we're all coming to this debate with our different assumptions, and that in the end, the people who control that space end up setting the agenda of it. And I'll just read you a brief quote from his article, because it was very good. He says, try as we might, we cannot free ourselves from our particular perspectives. And this has two consequences for the public square. First, the public square will necessarily take the shape of the particular perspective that created it, and so is not a neutral space. And second, if the rules of engagement in the public square inhibit the expression of your own particularities, because you can't be divorced from them, then you cannot participate in the public square without pretending to be someone else. People embody traditions, so the public square is not neutral towards traditions other than the one it created it. And he goes on to say, For liberal society, that means that the people most comfortable and fluent in public affairs will either be those who share the particular subjectivity or tradition of the creators of the public square, or those who can easily pretend to be someone other than they really are, who can live as someone whose tradition is not the foundation of their reality, who can reason one way in public and another way at home. As a result, all subjective viewpoints, other than the dominant one, become private. Tony, that's a very interesting article, and, and I look forward to being able to read it, because I haven't read it either. But that, that quote just is a little complicated for me. Just He's saying that the basic assumptions of the public square, for me to be able to talk in that public square, 
I've got to agree with the assumptions of the public square. Is that it? Essentially, you've either got to share the particular subjectivity, the particular viewpoint or perspective of the person who created the public square. You've either got to share their assumptions, in which case you're free to have a conversation with them based on the same assumptions, or else you've got to kind of pretend. You've got to put your own assumptions aside and keep them private and pretend to be part of this set of assumptions so as to participate in the conversation. So I'm not allowed to kind of come into the television debate and say, well, I'm a Christian and I believe God, and God actually says X, Y, Z, because that's not part of the Even though as a Christian, that's foundational to everything I actually believe and want to say in any conversation. It's the foundation of my whole reality, the whole way I think about everything is founded on the truth of God and of Jesus Christ, shapes the way I think about everything, but it can't shape the way I talk about things in the public square because that assumption's not allowed in that square. I've got to pretend to be someone a bit different than I am. Maybe just reveal a bit of my Christianity, but I can't reveal my assumptions. Oh, that's great. Where where can we get Lewis's article? Well, it's published in a book uh, called We Are Pilgrims, Mission From, In, and With the Margins of Our Diverse World. That's a bit of a mouthful in itself. Edited by Darren Cronshaw and Rosemary Diverse. I'll put the details in our show notes. Um, I think it's available on Amazon uh, AU. Uh, Lewis says. So um, his article is called There Is No Public Square, The Secularist Myth of Neutral Ground. It's very, very interesting and takes the ideas we were talking about in that um, piece a few weeks ago and just takes them a bit further. Good. The other really great piece of feedback that came in in response to that issue on the public square was from Mark, who lives in Allentown in Pennsylvania. And we had a wonderful email exchange back and forward discussing this issue. In our edition, we talked about the catchphrase of the Keller Centre, for cultural apologetics, which was that it wants to help Christians share the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel as the only hope that fulfills our deepest longings. And we kind of critiqued that idea that our deepest longings were something that could be fulfilled through what we were doing. And Mark writes, I've been thinking about these comments. It sounds like you're challenging the subversive fulfillment idea that uh, Tim Keller and others, like Dan Strange from Oak Hill, often champion. Their argument seems to be that sin hasn't totally eroded our fundamental desires, which reflect our true created nature, but involves seeking for those things in created things rather than the creator. The famous Augustine quote springs to mind about being restless until we find our rest in God. We want rest, but we can't find it in the way we want. And thus the apologetic method is to say yes, no, yes. Yes to the fundamental way in which a person still retains the image of God, expressed in especially in terms of God-given longings, and no to our twisted desires and misplaced hopes, and then yes to the way Jesus truly fulfills them. Uh, Biblical references to support this might include Jeremiah 2, we want water, but turn from God and go to broken cisterns. Uh, Being an adopted U.S. Presbyterian and a WTS grad, this kind of thinking is now in my blood, but you have caused me to wonder whether it is truly biblical or Calvinistic. Do I need a blood transfusion, says Mark? And we had a really nice (laughs) conversation about it. Uh, In our own context here in Australia, Philip, this is also uh, the kind of apologetic or evangelistic approach that Sam Chan and other people uh, propose. In other words, that there are God-given desires or aspirations Um, that are expressed in every person and every culture, and that evangelism should be alert to them, um, dig them up, as it were, and craft a presentation of the gospel that resonates with those desires, critiques them, but then shows them how their fulfillment comes in Jesus and the gospel. Now, I've got a few thoughts on this. I've been thinking about this for a while, so I'm going to blather on for a bit, Philip, 
Good. Uh, and see Good. what you think. Now, in one sense, this is one of the the oldest tendencies in Western thought, which is to well, dear listener, here I am again, a couple of days later after that conversation with Philip about the issue of the yes, no, yes approach and God-given desires and so on. It's always my hope in those conversations that when I share my kind of first draft thoughts in conversation with Philip, that the result will be a much better second draft. But in this case, well, let's just say that the first draft was a bit more like a zero draft. It was so long and convoluted and confusing in the end that trying to rescue something out of it proved to be a bit of a lost cause. And so it really was much easier to start again, which is what I've done and which is what follows. The first thing to say in response to Mark's excellent question is that I have addressed this before. There's a post that I put out when this newsletter was still called The Painful Truth called Same, Same, But Different. I'll put the details in the show notes, which did address this question, the resonance, dissonance, gospel approach to evangelism, which is another way that this yes, no, yes approach is described. And as I said in that piece, there are ways in which a kind of yes, no, yes pattern can be a quite legitimate and helpful way to describe what's happening in a gospel conversation or proclamation. And in some ways, you could say that two ways to live itself has this kind of yes, no, yes shape. It starts with, yes, God is the ruler and creator of a good world that we live in. And we were created to rule and steward and enjoy this good world under him, giving honor and thanks to him. And this resonates with everybody to some extent, because we do still experience the world as a good place, as a good and ordered place, even if it's fallen. But secondly, no, we also experience the world as frustrating and fallen and corrupt. And that's because we all reject God as the ruler and creator of the world and seek to run our own lives our own way, as Two Ways to Live says. And our rebellion against God leads to that consequence, to God's judgment, which is experienced now in the terrible mess we make of our lives and of the world, and in the future, in death and in judgment, finally, on that great last day. So there's a yes and a no, but then again a yes from God. God sends his son to die for our sins and to rise as the ruler of the world, offering us forgiveness and new life. Our response to that being, of course, repentance and faith. And so in some sense, the gospel has a kind of yes, no, yes shape to it. So what's the problem with applying that yes, no, yes shape of things to our twisted desires and misplaced hopes, as Mark puts it? Now, I suggested in that earlier piece that without care, this approach can easily get it wrong. It can easily diverge from the way that the apostles themselves preach the gospel because it can focus on the symptoms of our rebellion, in this case that our desires are frustrated, rather than on the underlying problem or disease, that is that we've rejected God and that we're under his judgment. And so the gospel can become a story about how God sent Jesus to fulfill our deepest longings and desires, rather than a proclamation of the lordship of Jesus as the crucified Christ who died to take the punishment we deserve and who calls on us to repent and receive forgiveness of sins and so on. Now, I've very briefly summarized the argument of that earlier piece here, I guess, but it's worth saying a little bit more, especially about the subject of desires 
And in particular, do we have deep down longings and desires that are fulfilled in the gospel? Well, I guess we need to start by asking, what is a desire? Desire, in the sense that we're talking about it, is a transitive verb, you could say. It needs something to complete it. It's an attraction towards or a longing for or a wanting of something. That something might be a cool glass of water or safety in the midst of danger, or it might be a beautiful thing or a beautiful person. This means that desire itself is neither intrinsically positive or negative, good or bad. It really depends on what is being desired and in what way and for what purpose. And this kind of neutral flavour of what desire is, is reflected in the Bible as well. Desire or passion in the Bible can be a positive and worthwhile thing, or very often it's negative because of our sinfulness and what that does to our desires. So you could say, quite rightly, that the ability to desire things is part of our God-given nature, and that some of our desires will be good, or at least in part good, because they are called forth or focused on good and desirable things in the world that God has created. The goodness of desire lies in the good and beautiful things and people we long for. It doesn't belong in the desire itself. Desire has no innate content or direction. It depends for its goodness, or its evilness for that matter, on our perception of something being desirable and on our purposes in wanting it. So desire is complicated, and it's inseparably connected to our knowledge and perception of the world, of what is good or evil. And it's inseparably connected to our purposes and intentions in wanting things. In classical theological terms, we could say that our desires or affections are intrinsically and inseparably connected with our reason and with our will. Now, the Reformers understood this. They argued that you couldn't split desire from reason or will as if these three things operated separately somehow, or as if one was less fallen or sinful than the others, or as if one was in some way sealed off or protected from the effects of sin. They insisted that our whole complex personality in all its facets was inescapably lost and trapped in sin. And this is, of course, the doctrine of total depravity, as it's called which means not that we're all as depraved and evil as we could totally and possibly be, but that no part of us has escaped the corrupting effects of sin. Now, we won't go into the details here, but the Reformers were arguing this against Roman Catholicism, which taught that although we are sinful and fallen, we're not so far fallen and sinful that we're not capable of climbing our way back towards God with the help of the church, especially via our reason. If a properly instructed reason could be put to good use by our wills, then we could want and choose what is right and merit salvation. And the reformers were right to argue against this, to argue for total depravity, because it's what the New Testament itself consistently teaches. Romans 1, 18-32, a famous passage, is a key passage, as is the argument of places like Romans 5-8, to Ephesians 2, Galatians 5, James 1. The consistent witness of the New Testament is that our rejection of God and the suppression of the truth about him 
results in every aspect of our personality becoming distorted and corrupt. Our reasoning becomes vain, our hearts are darkened, and we're given over to desiring perversity and evil. In the striking words of Romans 1.28, And even as they refused to have God in their knowledge, God gave them up to a reprobate mind to do those things which ought not to or should not be done. This is why we are captive to evil desire and why the desires of the flesh are always and invariably contrary to the spirit, as Galatians 5.16 says. Our fleshly desires are inseparable from our fleshly perception of what is good and our fleshly intentions and purposes. Like Satan in Paradise Lost, we've said, Evil, be thou my good. And so our deepest longings and desires are now perverse. They're anti-God, just like our deepest knowledge and our deepest intentions. And this is where some versions of the yes-no-yes approach come unstuck, in my view. They speak as if there is some good God-given desire lurking deep down in the basement of our personalities, waiting to be brought out into the light, as if there's a corner of our souls that really does want God and want his goodness, and that all we need to do is disabuse people of the twisted and false ways they're going about this and point them to where those deep-down desires can now be fulfilled. It would be much better, and I think more biblical, to say that my deepest desires are driven by my deepest reasonings and intentions, all of which are in service of the fundamental thing that I believe, and that is that I am God rather than God, that I have profoundly rejected the truth about God and have made the ridiculous choice to install myself as the centre and rationale and ruler of my life. This is my deepest understanding and choice and desire. It's to reject God and to love myself instead. And there's nothing underneath or beyond this in our personalities. Which means that even my desire for the good things of God's world, for food and sex and relationships and satisfying work and meaning and purpose and freedom and justice and so on, my desire for them will still be corrupt because they all exist in service of the foundational knowledge and choice of my life, which is the sovereignty of me. Now, this basic fault in my knowledge and in my choices, that I am more important than God, results in me misknowing everything about the world and misdesiring it. Because the foundations are rotten, Everything we desire or choose is also therefore compromised or corrupted in some way. And this, it seems to me, is where cultural engagement with people's desires fits into evangelism. We can point out that there are indeed good things in God's world to be desired and enjoyed, but that our consistent inability to do so, our frustration in trying to do so, is intrinsically connected with the deepest truth about ourselves, our rejection of God. In that sense, the gospel does address our deepest longings, but it does so by declaring to us that our deepest longings are corrupt and self-centred and anti-God, and that we're under God's judgment because of this, but that wonderfully God has sent his Son to redeem us.
Now, this approach is what we've called elsewhere categoria, the critique of the world that exposes the folly of its rejection of God as an introduction to the great gospel news of what God has done to save and forgive and bring new life. Now, there is quite a bit more to be said on all of this, but I think that's probably enough for the time being. We need to come back in particular to the question of persuasion and argument. How does persuasion and argument fit into the presentation of the gospel? Do we just kind of declare the gospel and hope and pray that people believe it? Or is there some kind of persuasive or argumentative approach that is quite legitimate as we share the gospel? I think there is. And the nature of that persuasion and what it means for us to present evidence and argue for the truth of the gospel, well, that's something that we need to come back to at some point. In the meantime, thanks once again for being here on this episode of Two Ways News. I do hope that you found all that stimulating and that you'll get in touch and let me know what you think. In particular, if you have any further thoughts about this whole question of desires and where our deepest longings fit into evangelism, please get in touch. You can send me an email at tonyjpayne at me.com. Well, that's about all for this week. Thanks for being here once again. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.